0: Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson, and on the podcast this week... James Heal asks whether the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, can carry on. Cosmo Landersman reads his piece in the arts section of the magazine on selling a destroyed piano to the Tate. And Miranda Morrison reads her piece in the school supplement on the damaging obsession with STEM in secondary schools. Up first, James Heal.
1: When Simon Case was named as Cabinet Secretary in September 2020, he became, at the age of 41, the youngest appointee in more than 100 years. He will probably earn another distinction soon, the youngest ex-Cabinet Secretary in history. In Westminster, some say his departure is a question of when, not if. Should he go this year, to allow a successor time to bed in, or wait until after the next election? Case arrived at number 10 in the middle of a pandemic, having never run a government department, but boasting a PhD on Whitehall machinery, written under the supervision of Peter Hennessy, Britain's foremost living political historian, and exponent of the good chap theory of government. This holds that the lesser of the rules is less important than the system being run by players who understand their spirit. But what happens when good chaps serve a master who doesn't play by the rules? Case's original sin, according to his defenders, was being young and talented and promoted to that job before he was grey. More accurately, his sin was being young, talented and promoted by Boris Johnson. Within months of his arrival, Case was embroiled in unorthodox schemes, such as a plan to have a private donor pay for Downing Street's refurbishments. His involvement in Richard Sharp's nomination for chairman of the BBC remains a source of ongoing controversy, as does his knowledge of allegations about the conduct of Dominic Raab and Nadeem Zahawi. Case previously served as Prince William's private secretary, and it's the charge of courtier that has been flung at him as he has sought to balance the demands of being both cabinet secretary and the head of the civil service. Too often, his critics claim, he has served the king at the expense of the country, a fixer, not a leader, says one Whitehall veteran. There was fury at his apparent acquiescence in Johnson's planned 91,000 job cuts and Liz Truss's dismissal of Tom Scholar as the Treasury's permanent secretary. His performance is held to have been a motivating factor in Sue Gray's decision to defect to Labour after he reportedly blocked her appointment, as Permanent Secretary at the Department for Business and Trade. Not all cases' woes can be pinned on his political masters, especially his conduct during Partygate. He was forced to recuse himself from leading the investigation into such gatherings in December 2021, after the revelation of his own attendance at a drinks party at previous Christmas. He also joined Johnson's birthday celebration, for which Johnson and Sunak received fixed penalty notices. Throughout it all, the Number 10 press office lied with impunity, Case justified this to MPs on the grounds that such conduct was not automatically a breach of the Civil Service Code. Matt Hancock's leaks of WhatsApp messages paint a picture of a dysfunctional government with Case at its heart. He emerges as a supposedly impartial Mandarin who was too familiar with ministers and indiscreet in his language. He called quarantine measures hilarious, expressed a desire to see the faces of people coming out of first class and into a Premier in shoebox, and disparaged those in cabinet who promoted pure Conservative ideology. He also referred to the then Prime Minister as a nationally distrusted figure. Case is already something of a survivor in the Westminster jungle. Many tipped him to be sacked in September. Instead, Tom Scholar got the boot, ensuring Case's survival under Liz Truss and ensuring that there was no obvious candidate to replace him. Scholar's replacement, James Bowler, is well respected, but became head of the Treasury only in October. Tamara Finkelstein and Sarah Healy are strong contenders. Both offer four years of service as a permanent secretary. Antonio Romeo would be a high-profile choice whilst Sir Christopher Wormald and Sir Matthew Rycroft would be appointments more in line with the traditional Sir Humphrey mould. The post could even be split with the duties of Cabinet Secretary separated from that of the head of the civil service. Case's difficulty to square the two roles have strengthened the case for such change. At the root of every aspect of intelligence practice is human judgement, wrote Case in his doctorate on post-war British intelligence. Ultimately, those involved in any system requiring human input, he concluded, must always be aware of that system's flaws. It is a tragedy for the civil service that a man so keenly aware of Whitehall's frailties lacked the sound judgement needed to rectify them. That was James Heel. Next, Cosmo Landsman.
2: One day in October 1966, I came home from school and found a large man stripped to the waist, attacking the family piano with a woodman's axe. Seeing the anxious look on my face, my father assured me there was nothing to be afraid of, the axe-wielding man was, he explained, an artist who was creating a work of art. My 11-year-old brain was puzzled. How could this axe-wielding lunatic be an artist? Can you destroy a piano and call it art? These same basic questions came to my mind last week when I went to Tate Britain and found that very piano hanging on a wall after 11 years in the Tate storage rooms. The piece, entitled... Duncan Terrace Piano Destruction Concert was by the American destruction artist Rafael Monteres Ortez. Duncan Terrace was the street where my family lived in Islington, North London. So what was Ortez doing in our house destroying our piano? And, as many will no doubt wonder, what was that piano doing in Tate Britain? Ortez had been invited to participate in a Destruction in Art symposium held in London in September 1966. Poets, scientists, writers, thinkers and artists from America and Europe, including the notorious Otto Mule and then the unknown Yoko Ono, were invited to explore how the creative community could respond to the violence of modern life. This, after all, was the era of Vietnam and fears about nuclear war. I'm not sure how Ortez ended up in our house. Most of the Diaz events were held in the African Center in Covent Garden, but I suspect that he'd been invited to pop around with his axe by my father, Jay Landisman, who collected avant-garde art and avant-garde people. Destruction art was all the rage in the early 1960s. Books were being burned, John Lantham. Clothes were being destroyed, Yoko Ono. And paintings were self-destructing, Gustav Metzger. What was being created in our house by Ortez was already moving from the marginal world of the avant-garde to mass culture via rock music. Bands such as The Who and Jimi Hendrix destroyed their guitars and equipment live on stage. Before attacking our piano, Ortez had already destroyed other pianos, one for the BBC, which turned out to be the wrong piano. And before that, he had been to our house and destroyed a mattress and a comfy chair. At the time, I wondered what was next the kitchen table, the front door, me. By the way, the Tate also has the destroyed chair entitled Duncan Terrace Chair Destruction in its collection, but the work is not currently on display. After Ortez had taken his axe to the mattress, it resembled a giant vulva with its internal stuffing on display like pubic hair. What happened to the destroyed mattress is a mystery, but it was last on display in the office of Victor Lounds, then the boss of the London Playboy Club. I remember that day of destruction well. Ortez gave his concert to a small invited audience assembled in the basement, including two curators from the Tate Gallery, as Tate Britain was then known, a sound recordist and someone from the BBC. They watched with earnest attentiveness as the axe thundered into the piano and bits of shattered wood and black and white keys shot across the room. It was a cacophonous assault on the human ear and the history of art. When it comes to modern art, they say that One man's trash is another man's art. Orteza's art was all set to end up in the trash can, for after my parents' death, I could find no collectors interested in it. I was about to put the piano and chair into a skip when a man named Adrian Dannett decided to pop by for the family home for tea. Dannett is an arts writer and art collector who's a cross between Kenneth Clark and Arthur Daly. When I told him I was planning to dump Orteza's piano and chair in a skip, he looked aghast. Don't do that. Let me sell it to the Tate instead. Don't be ridiculous, I replied. Nobody's going to buy that. The piano had, over the years, fallen on hard times. It had lost its status as a work of subversive art and was littered with beer cans, ashtrays, candles, and one black bra. We gave it a tidy up before the curators of the Tate came to take a look. Just how unlikely a sale to the Tate would be can be seen by the other purchases of that year, 2012, which included a portrait of John Ruskin by John Everett Milias, a sculpture by Dame Barbara Hepworth, a sketch by Raphael, and a horse painting by George Stubbs. To my amazement, Dannet made the sale for a considerable sum under an arrangement known as the Inacceptance in lieu scheme. It's essentially a tax avoidance scheme for the cultural elite. You make an art donation and get a break on your inheritance tax. So why did they do it? because, I suspect, the piano and chair of the only surviving works from the Diaz event of 1966, the Tate saved two artistic works of destruction from destruction. What's interesting is its slight rewriting of art history to suit contemporary trends. On the explanatory sign by the piano, the viewer is told that, for Ortez, the instrument was a symbol of Eurocentric oppression and that its destruction was a ritual of release. That's not how Ortez framed it in 1966. He was much more concerned with aesthetics than with politics. Seeing the piano on the wall at Tape Breton was strange, like running into a bit of your private past in a very public space. I watched the reactions of a group of school kids looking at Ortez's creation. Some sniggered with incredulity, while others were clearly intrigued. One asked the same question as my 11-year-old self all those years ago. Is this art? I think he got a good answer when one of his classmates said that it was and went on to explain why. Because I've never seen a piano hanging on a wall before.
0: That was Cosmo Landisman, And finally, Miranda Morrison.
3: Whenever I tell people I used to be a maths teacher, the most common response is, I absolutely hated maths at school. It's an age-old tale to loathe maths lessons, or indeed your maths teacher. So what better way to make children loathe maths even more than to make it compulsory until the age of 18? Rishi Sunak's plan, announced at the start of the year, aims to address innumeracy and better prepare pupils for the workplace. There are many reasons why, on the surface, it seems a sensible approach, not least because the UK is one of the few countries in the world that does not require children to study maths in some form up to the age of 18. Some critics have argued that the plan shows a government which is out of touch – unaware of the recruitment crisis plaguing state schools. After all, how can we expect the further provision of two years of maths when maths teacher recruitment targets have been missed every year for more than a decade? Currently, around 45% of UK secondary schools depend on non-specialists to teach the subject. During my time as a teacher in an inner London school, class sizes from Year 7 to A-level all ballooned, placing great strain on an already stretched workforce. The recruitment crisis is having a big impact on the quality of maths teaching across the UK. What struck me most when I interviewed for teaching positions was the number of applicants who just couldn't teach. Many could not hold a room or engage a class, let alone break down a concept into its simple components or introduce a topic in an interesting context with energy and confidence. Bad maths teaching is rife and this is not only due to the increase in non-specialist teachers. It is a common misconception that bright Oxbridge graduates with engineering degrees make good maths teachers. Some of the best maths lessons I saw were delivered by people with degrees in art history or English. What is truly lacking in the profession is the understanding that being an effective math teacher requires not just high-level subject knowledge, but creativity. Those in favour of Sunak's reforms quite rightly say that numeracy skills are a necessity in the working world, but this policy is reactive rather than proactive. Education policy focuses too much on patching over problems at a later stage, at GCSE or A level, rather than considering improvements to the early stages of a child's educational life. I would see an enormous range of numeracy skills from children starting secondary school, indicating varying levels of effective teaching at primary level. Schools for children in their early years need to be better equipped and staffed to provide this, but parents also have a big role to play. Whether by asking their child to tell them which is the cheaper bag of pasta in a supermarket or reading aloud a worded mass problem in their homework, the master eighteen policy is also symbolic of a wider cultural issue that has intensified in the past decade. The government's preference for stem, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics over the arts and humanities is leading to the loss of interest in and access to creative subjects in state schools. There has been a marked decline in choice that pupils have due to timetable blocking and the disappearance of entire departments. Nearly 20 years ago, state school friends of mine took art alongside textiles and music. Now that same school no longer has a design and technology department. In its place is a tiny art faculty with fewer than half the members of staff it once had. Pre-GCSE pupils are taught art for around one to two hours per fortnight and their chances of learning how to design garments or work with wood and metal are non-existent. This form of education cannot be an effective provision for any community of individuals with aspirations to be creative. At A-level, entries for business studies and computing have seen the largest proportional increase in recent years, while those for subjects such as drama, music and design fell by 28% between 2014 and 2019. Of course, an uptake in computing needn't be a bad sign in a technology-driven world, but this cannot be the only reason for the sad decline of the arts – We still need artists and designers, playwrights and musicians, actors and journalists. These professions enrich our lives and are vital for economic prosperity. In 2021, the then Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, praised the influx of engineering and science undergraduates in universities as a positive sign that students were starting to pivot away from dead-end courses that leave young people with nothing but debt. His comment shows it has become commonplace to judge the success of a qualification by the salaries it leads to rather than the joy it gives us. It is sad to think of creative subjects as financially defunct, and therefore not worth studying. Those in favour of the Masterway team policy believe it will bridge the gap between privileged and underprivileged children. But state schools are under such pressure to attain Good Progress 8 performance scores, a measure of the results of mostly academic subjects, that non-academic children are taken out of their much-loved music lessons, or even told they cannot take a creative GCSE, in order to be taught extra maths, often with negligible outcomes. Surely it is not a sign of privilege to have limited choice. Of course there should be a minimum set of disciplines that are compulsory for pupils to learn, but it is unreasonable to prevent children from learning what they love. Denying a child three hours of drama a week, with extra maths in its place, could raise the school's Progress 8 score, but inevitably undermines the joy of learning. Over the years I have met children who would be utterly vile in their maths lessons by disrupting the class and refusing to work, resulting in them being removed. Often, I would see the same child sitting calmly in an art lesson focused on the beautiful design they printed from a lino cut or beaming from the applause they'd received after playing bass in a summer concert. We can all relate to being put off by things we are forced to do but also to the delight that comes from being absorbed in things that we love. For some children, this is maths and science but a significant proportion of creative children in the state sector are being denied the option to study a variety of creative subjects or are even being convinced to go down the STEM route simply because it is more lucrative. Many excellent state schools across the country understand that a rich curriculum is a collection of interconnecting disciplines where STEM is not separated from the arts and where mathematical language can be applied to multiple contexts. Children can learn to read graphs and geography as much as in computing or to interpret statistics in history as much as in biology. Young people starting out in the world of work will find that skills they learned in school begin to fall into place because they have a practical application Raising literacy and numeracy standards across the UK is not going to happen by reducing the curriculum in state schools to core subjects only. What is needed is a reversal of the attitude that arts and humanities limit a person's job opportunities and their earning potential, and the belief in a child's choice to learn about things that they love.
0: And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those pieces, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week.